Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. Just a heads up, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing uh, very sensitive topics and there will be some mention of sexual violence. So if you are a very sensitive person, this may not be the episode for you to listen to. You might want to skip ahead to the next one. My guest today is Dr. Janine Holk of Loyola University, Baltimore. Uh, Janine is a professor of political science, and she has been working for a long time on social relations in Poland, particularly under conditions of neoliberalism. So the transformation of the last 30 years. Her interests include Polish-Jewish relations, uh, Holocaust memories. She looks a lot at gender. She's been looking at LGBT social relations. Um, so we're really glad to have Janine today, particularly given the political and social events going on uh, right now in Poland around uh, abortion and around populist politics. So we're going to try and have a wide ranging conversation today about uh, changing society in Poland and what that means for politics. Welcome, Janine. Thank you so much for having me, Professor Dunn. I'm glad to be here. Um, so you, um, I want to talk mostly about a recent piece that you have called Polish Manhood in Transition, which is a fascinating article that takes up um, a 2001 film by Robert Glinski called Cześć Tereska. And maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about the film. Yes. So this was a film that had a really big impact when it came out. I saw it uh, right. I was in Poland, so I went to see it with a Polish friend right when it came out. And it was a came out at a time in in 2000 when some of the negative repercussions of the shift towards neoliberalism were really becoming felt in society and that artists were feeling more free to comment on them. So Glinski intends the film it appears through interviews to be about a girl who is somewhat adrift in newly capitalist Poland. She's a preteen when the film opens. She has a problematic relationship with her family. She's out on the street playing with other kids. She ends up getting caught up uh, with some sort of what, what Glinski might call bad influences and ends up being quite vulnerable to a sexual predator, although Glinsky is very ambivalent about how he portrays this sexual predator. And Tereska goes through a series of experiences in which she gradually becomes more and more disconnected from what we might call the sort of dominant Polish moral universe of the good Catholic girl. And um, there's a very shocking uh, end to the film in which she she's in conflict with this um, sexual predator and she beats him, apparently killing him. Uh, and so it was, it, the film sparked enormous discussion in Poland about youth, uh, about girls, about being left adrift in these capitalist times about parents not knowing, not being prepared for what teens might encounter in a capitalist social landscape. And so, yeah, and so um, the film was 
received and I think intended to be a commentary on girl morality. And so what myself and my co-author did is we wondered, well, wait a minute, what about the sexual predator? What about the father? What about these men in the film that are surrounding her? She's in really a world of men. And so we kind of looked at the film through, and we used the article to look at what is happening with masculinity in the neoliberal period maybe beyond what Glinsky was intending um, and kind of do a counter reading of the film. Yeah. Like all texts, it, its meaning exceeds its own context, right? You can always read more into it than the director or the author intended. One of the interesting things about the film that you point out is that um, because the, the central character is a girl, the horribly violent things that happen to her in the film um, uh, including a sexual assault, are sort of made to seem as the consequence of her choices, not as the consequence of men's actions. Can you explain a little bit more about why you think this film ends up putting the blame for violence on Tereska? Well, I think um, this happens in a lot of cultures, of course, not just Polish culture. Right. In which uh, there's a, a cultural shift. It's a transition time in society. Uh, it's a time where people are renegotiating their identities, their social relationships. And you have a figure right of a female, a woman, a girl who's a little too free. Right. She's she's portrayed as having a lot of mobility. She's portrayed as making a lot of choices and that can be troubling socially, right? That can be troubling to people who are used to a very hierarchical society in which there are strict gender roles and strict understandings of what it means to be male and female. And so this film is, we could say, a kind of um, working through of some concerns that the director and maybe others in Poland have about girls simply just having too much power, having too much freedom. And so they narrate a kind of path for her in which consciously or unconsciously they punish her for that. And so um, there are scenes in which the actress has to undergo violence, as you said, including a really troubling rape scene, and then including this kind of building sexual predation uh, with another character also. And then even the, even the final scene where she beats this sexual predator into unconsciousness, um, it's violent for the predator, but it's violent for her also. Yeah, it seemed like one of the consequences of her choices is that she becomes increasingly morally numb um, that that her own um, as more violence is enacted on her her own morality becomes sort of more and more disconnected from the social world until she's um, beating this sexual predator for a kind of sadistic pleasure of her own and then when she kills him we don't know how she feels about it um, yeah, I think that's a really good point you make. Um, what happens is she has desires, like all girls have. So she has an, a range of desires. Some of them are 
you know, desires that she doesn't really even mean to carry out. <laughs> and some of them are desires she would like to experiment with. And here we are in a new capitalist landscape where there's a lot more encouragement to express express your desires um, and there are a lot more pathways some of that is of course distorted by capitalism itself and so she uh, she expresses desires and then comes up against a lot of rejection of those desires or a lot of maybe response that no no that's not okay it's not okay for you to have these desires it's not okay for you to be so mobile it's not okay for you to express anger and so she has no place to process these very natural desires and very understandable desires and again it seems like the film wants to re-narrate those desires as a move away from a nourishing morality yet uh, I, you know, we read that as maybe narrating those desires as, um, just as a way to maybe just, as I said before, punish her for having them. Um, she's so that in, the, the, the moral of the story is sort of the more you get what you want, the less you can feel pleasure from it. Well, that's, yeah, that's a very interesting way to put it. And pleasure is really problematized in the film as it is. I would say now in Polish society, right, in which pleasure is viewed with suspicion, especially certain bodies having pleasure. Uh, and especially if that pleasure leads to sexual intimacy, then it's considered something very suspicious. Yeah, and we're going to circle back around to that. Um, you, you say in the, I, I, I want to circle back to something you said a little earlier, which is that you decided to read the film not through the the focus on the central character and her femininity and or lack thereof. Um, but you wanted to look at the men in the film and you say that all of the men in the film are showing some kind of traumatized or compromised masculinity because of the transformation of society. Can you talk a little bit more about who these characters are and why they come across as such broken people? Well, that is a complicated question, Dr. Dunn. So on the one hand, there has actually been a big discussion in Poland about what's called a crisis of masculinity. Um, and that dominant discussion is not what we mean in the article. So first I'll just say, you know, there is this idea that masculinity has been stolen or repressed by overly assertive feminism in Poland. You know, and, and so it's a kind of conservative discussion in which uh, the sort of traditional Polish values of manhood, such as um, being courageous, uh, being protective of one's family, have been uh, taken away by, first of all, capitalism and second of all, women being kind of uh, feminism is thrown a lot, around a lot as so the it's culprit. Not, it's not men failing to be properly male. It's that they're being emasculated. Exactly. That's the central argument. That's the central argument. They're being emasculated. And then, of course, the solution is to recuperate uh, this masculinity, these conservative values in terms of a powerful ma male figure in the family, uh, in a nuclear family in which um, the woman is. I don't know what. Uh, there's different arguments about the women's role, but definitely not a feminist. <laughs> um, and so the way we approach this crisis is we look at it more as 
um, through the idea that masculinity itself is never really something that's totally achievable, right? Masculinity uh, in a specific social context is always a, an ideal. It's an ideal that's been constructed culturally, right, and socially and politically. And no one is really able to really be perfectly masculine, right? It's unachievable. And so, but yet it still exerts this enormous pressure on people. And so we look at, for example, her father. Um, and I would like to just make a point here in the film that Glinsky was very strategic in choosing actors uh, for these roles. And so the father is, is a well-known um, Polish actor that, that film goers would recognize, let's put it that way. And so he is portrayed as having um, he's portrayed as having working very hard um, at a certain point, possibly losing his job, uh, often trying very hard to provide for his family, sometimes falling short, butting heads with Tresca as she becomes a teenager and wants to argue some more. And he ends up losing his job and uh, descending into alcoholism. And this is really portrayed starkly in this incredibly in this incredible scene that's beautifully filmed in one of those narrow hallways in Poland. So um, Tereska's family lives in one of these blockies in these in these um, socialist housing apartment blocks with the narrow hallway and the tiny elevator that goes up and down. And so he's filmed, you know, going into the elevator in a rage uh, after having a big argument with Tereska. And just just inside the elevator, just pounding on it, ripping off the door. And you can just see uh, his he's inside this tiny, tiny little little elevator and he's feeling very trapped and he's pounding against it. And it's just a beautiful scene about um, how frustrated he is that he cannot be who he wants to be as a human. Um, he feels very much that as a man, perhaps, he needs to be certain things such as um, always in charge of his daughter, um, always being able to provide for his family, always employed. But it's also as a human, right? He's, he's feeling very frustrated and in a rage. And rage is the, really the only way he's allowed to express his ambivalences. I feel yeah, like we got way off like from your question there. <laughs> The the men that you're talking about are very often portrayed as somehow the boundary between chaos and order, okay. right? They're they're supposed to protect their families from the chaos that's being brought about in the outside world by the new economy and by shifting and changing social mores. And here's a man who is just failing, right? The chaos is entering the house, it's coming in with the teenager. He's trying to make sense of it all and keep things in stable order, and he's failing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And he's he's failing not because of who he is, but he's failing because it it's impossible. I mean, it's it's very difficult to do those things with the resources that he's been given. Did you think that, I mean, that was a, a maybe a portrayal or a commentary that would resonate widely with men in Poland, that they feel that they're in many ways in an impossible situation uh, and they can't make the chaos into order? Um, I would agree, although I would probably disagree with who they blame. You know, so there is a sense in Poland uh, supported by, for example, the Law and Justice Party and the Catholic Church that 
um, yes, families are struggling, men are struggling, and it's the fault of the EU, the fault of the West, the fault of gender ideology, you know, the fault of women being overly independent. And so there is that uh, acknowledgement that masculinity is in crisis, but there is a blame put on women for that versus maybe another way of looking at it, right, in which um, masculinity itself is itself problematic when we ask anyone to, to survive a difficult situation and keep something called masculinity intact. Yeah, you say something that's just so beautifully put in the article. You say um, the terms masculinity and femininity are associated with highly emotionally charged political strategies and interpretations of past and present. So what it, what it means to be a man in contemporary Poland becomes so tied to the, the historical context and the economic context that it's hard to tell where the person stops and starts and where the world stops and starts. It sounds like a very confusing time for most people. What, how, how is it for the other men in the film? Well, um, you know, the most probably the most compelling figure is the sexual predator who is, I'm not sure Glensky really totally um, comes clean in saying he's a sexual predator. I mean, he, he's the building superintendent, right? Yeah. He's the building superintendent and uh, Tereska's overworked mother um, asks if when Tereska's about nine or 10, you know, asks if he could keep an eye on Tereska while the mother's at work uh, for some temporary amount of time. And so they begin what seems to be a kind of nice relationship in which, you know, he's entertaining her, she's asking questions, he's in a wheelchair, and, you know, he shows her how his wheelchair works, how he can do wheelies with it, and all of this stuff, and then he's gradually grooming her, uh, um, although Glinsky doesn't really admit to that. Um, so we're so, left with this ambiguous situation, whether what he's doing is nice and friendly or is in fact predatory. It's not, there's no kind of clear moral valence on what he's doing in the film. That's exactly right. And it's complicated even more by his presentation as somebody who's disabled. So he's disabled, he's in a wheelchair, he's the building superintendent, and it's, and Glinsky does make very clear that he's lonely, he's alone, he um, has liquor bottles, you know, on the shelf, and um, is, has been somewhat himself abandoned by neoliberal society. So you have this um, figure that the film puts in a certain position as symbolizing a, an abandonment of vulnerable people. Then he encounters Tereska and you have these two interpretations of the film. Either Tereska gradually starts to want to sadistically take advantage of him, um, or you can read it as he is taking advantage of her. And it's just this very He's letting her tension. beat his unfeeling legs, right? He's letting her hit yeah. him with a, with a pole. Yes, and he gradually escalates this. Uh, he, begin, he eventually lets her burn his legs with a cigarette um, as, she's, as she's learning how to smoke cigarettes, right? So he's, he's, he's allowing her more freedom than she's allowed at home, at school, and 
you know, anywhere else in Poland. And so she really readily moves forward in intimacy with him, not sexual intimacy, but just they have, they're in the, his little apartment and they're doing things that are very transgressive. And she's enchanted by being able to do these transgressive things. And this brings back to, this brings us back to that issue of her desires and, you know, the idea of young people being enchanted by being able to do things that are really forbidden, like, oh, can I put a cigarette on your leg and see what happens? You know, that's totally, you know, not allowed. But again, um, you know, how you interpret that. I mean, you could interpret that as a horrific crime or you could interpret that as just curiosity of a teenager. You know, it's, it can go in different directions. And we interpret it as, we, we interpret it as a, you know, a grooming relationship in which she has desires that are understandable and that he does not limit, right? So back to what you were saying before, Dr. John, about males being set up uh, to, hold a boundary between what's permissible and not permissible and then not being able to do that. So we have the sexual predator, the neighbor Edek, and he he does not. In fact, he kind of opens up the boundaries. He's like, sure, burn my legs, see what happens. And gradually, um, actually eventually graduates her to more and more violent acts, including trying to get her to join him in drinking alcohol. So I just want to pause and make clear that the film takes place over a few years. So from when she's about nine until I would guess, I think she's about 15 or 16. So they do have this relationship that goes on um, over several years. And um, so then later he does try to get her to join him in drinking and she does have a boyfriend at a certain point who who rapes her and she comes to Edek after the rape to try to find some comfort from him and he turns the tables and he begins to demand from her the sexual details for his own pleasure and she's totally betrayed by that turning of the tables and that's when she begins to beat his legs at first and then him wow it's a incredibly intense film you you say um one of the things i thought was really interesting is that you you make this point that masculinity in poland is deeply bound up with ideas of the nation can you say a little bit more about how nationalism and and being a man are wrapped up together hmm um you know, it's hard to answer without giving, without saying something overly reductive and overly simplistic, like, you know, the nation assigns specific roles of males and females, which is just too simplistic, I think. Um, I do think there's a sense in nations like Poland, and, you know, sometimes I, I would like to say these issues about masculinity and, fem- and femininity occur in all cultures or in all Western cultures, at least. But in Poland, there are some things very specific to Poland, and that is the sense of national vulnerability, right? The ge- geographic territorial vulnerability that the Polish nation has been forged in, like this crucible of always feeling that you may be overrun, you may be attacked, you may be manipulated by outside powers. And so that crucible of vulnerability really, I think, can add an extra um, extra complication as issues of performing masculinity and femininity, you know, play out. Um, 
Well, it's really interesting that in the in the recent political crisis in Poland, um, it hasn't. I mean, it is certainly a clash between the right and the left, between uh, traditionalist, nationalist, uh, religious people, and people on the left who want to rework some of those categories and rethink what it means to be Polish or to be male or female or um, to, to be in a relationship with God or not in a relationship with God. So we can think about it in those kinds of um, polarizations. But one of the things that's really interesting to me that in addition to it being about conservatism versus a kind of liberalism, it's playing out as a very gendered crisis right now. And, And it's playing out particularly over the issue of abortion right now. And Poland has recently... Um, banned uh, almost all abortion, including abortion in the case of fetal abnormality. And this has led many tens of thousands of people out onto the streets. Um, and many of those, many people I've been talking to are saying it's a revolution. And the, and the revolution part of it is that young women are getting out there and they're politically involved. So maybe you can Tell us a little bit as this crisis is continuing to unfold about why and how gender has gotten so bound up in the right-left political discourse in Poland today. Thank you for asking that question. So I'm working on that right now, and I am developing some uh, I'm developing some work on it. And the first thing I would like to point out is that. Many Western countries are going through a period in which the political landscape and citizenship itself is being increasingly biologized. Uh, We're now considered, um, people are looked at through a biological lens. You know, the body is very, very much a physical body with diseases and illnesses, carrying a virus, and Whereas under socialist times, you know, this issue of whether a woman has an abortion or not was considered somewhat just of a very depoliticized medical procedure, sometimes connected to economic, you know, being able to survive economically. With the 1990s neoliberalism, we see this biological dimension. It doesn't really come to fruition until the 2000s when polls start really using things like IVF and sonograms, and you start to understand pregnancy as something very physical, something that can be manipulated, right? Um, Embryos can be stored, eggs can be stored, um, there's surrogacy, and so we have a landscape in which Sexual intimacy is considered a biological act, and we even see that in church statements banning IVF in which they say, uh, you know, no, the conjugal act, right, the act of procreation is is the only acceptable act, you know, of sexual intimacy. And so that's a very biologized statement as well coming from the church. And so this landscape, this landscape of eggs and embryos and fetuses, right, is not, is part of the terrain. It's, it's part of the social terrain. It's part of the discourse. And so then in 2015, we see the conservative movement in Poland and the, and the political party entering and, and entering into this terrain, right? And so, um, and so there is an opportunity for the state to begin to 
control people and create what I call a procreative regime in which the state starts to decide who should reproduce and have children and who should not. And uh, it, of course, is allied with the church sometimes on this um, and is sometimes totally on its own. And we see this, for example, in the very, very popular law and justice pro-family subsidy in which the uh, conservative government gives out cash as people have children uh, inside a nuclear family structure to reward people who are procreating in the way that law and justice thinks will uphold the nation and the nation's values. Um, and but, you know, you run into a lot of contradictions. So let's just say a married couple has fertility issues and they would like to maybe use a surrogate or they wouldn't like to uh, artificially manipulate, right, uh, an embryo. Well, then it comes up against church teachings, right? And so then what, what, uh, what kind of, some of these uh, technical practices allow uh, people to have children, right? And some of them allow single people to have children, and some of them allow gay people to have children. And so suddenly the state is, the biology is kind of outpacing the state, and the state is trying to keep track of, you know, okay, wait a minute, where do we stand? Do we want more Polish people regardless? So we want more babies, or do we want babies that come out only in a certain way? And the state be then became very, very engaged in legally managing reproduction, uh, which practices are legal and why, who can access which types of reproductive technologies and things like that. And so that really has happened in the past few years quite a bit. Um, and then so um, what's, what I just want to add is interesting is that this, the government, as a justification for its increasing intrusion into reproduction, argues about something it creates called an unborn child, an imagined unborn child. And we, of course, see this in a lot of Western settings. And it, what makes Poland different is that it legally argues that the state is the body that must protect the unborn child. So the state must step forward and claim to defend the embryo, claim to defend the fetus, which we don't see as much in West, other Western settings. Yeah, the state as father, right? Again, protecting a child from whatever the chaos, moral chaos of the outside world is. And moral chaos is exactly right. So they use moral chaos, as part in particular, sexual predation and sexual abuse as the threat, right? So all of these Western influences, including um, sexual liberty and sexual abuse, might become brought to bear upon reproduction run amok. So we need to be really careful about processes of reproduction, and the state needs to uh, manage that very directly. So women in Poland, when this decision comes down just a few days ago, have been going through quite a few years of the state gradually more and more claiming that it has a right to uh, address what's going on inside people's bodies. Yeah, I, well, the quote that really struck me was a quote, I think it's by Kaczynski who said this, that what was important is that 
that women give birth to to children, no matter how deformed they are, no matter how likely they are to die, so that they can be baptized and then buried. That really struck well, me. It's like the state taking responsibility for sort of the soul of this of this child. Yes, and um, there is this sort of troubling, though. I will I will just interject here a little bit and say there is this troubling use of this word deformed, you know, which again, seems to be used on both the anti-abortion and pro-abortion sides, you know, um, which I think is a little problematic. Um, What I think women really are protesting about is the attack on their bodily autonomy. You know, some of it is about abortion specifically, but in general, the state has started to restrict people's autonomy and their bodies in such a way that it feels so intrusive and so offensive that, uh, you know, people are just deciding to protest. Even people, and um, Dr. Dunn, you probably have read this recently in the media, people who voted for PIS in recent elections are out protesting now. The things that really struck me were support from farmers. There are lines of tractors in the countryside um, lining up in support of abortion rights, which seems to be a strange juxtaposition that I don't really understand. And support from minors. Um, So in some way, this has become um, an interesting coalition of people opposing this these new laws. Can you explain something about why this coalition is emerging? So I can explain what I think, and that is because, um, so I I recently did an article that on um, surrogacy and surrogacy in Poland, and I got into um, some, a lot of the legal uh, and the state's um, stance on surrogacy. And I, um, Surrogacy had been very popular and legal and supported by PIS, and then very recently they clamped down on it. And so what I discovered is that um, for households, not being able to control the number of children you have is devastating. Um, Although Poland has been going through a period of growth, it's prosperous, it is still very difficult for many people, especially people from certain regions and certain uh, having uh, under-resourced people, right, struggling, and especially women and women who have been divorced, who are single, or who have a partner who they feel is unreliable. Um, getting pregnant again and again, right, with, without recourse to abortion is, is hor- it's, it's devastating to them. And it's devastating not it's devastating economically, right? They cannot survive. They cannot provide for their children um, if they can't control their reproduction. So what I would say in response to you is it's not so much about rights. It's not the right to have an abortion. It's autonomy. It's the ability to have autonomy sexually and procreatively. Um, and to make a family the way I want to make a family and the way I can best survive. And these farmers and miners know very well that 
that it's how difficult it is in this neoliberal liberal society to not be able to control how many people are in your family or how many children you have. Yeah, it's interesting. You, 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 you talk about people feeling as if their economic and social survival depends on reproductive control. And one of the things you've written in, in another uh, context is that um, there are people in Poland whose ability to survive is always treated as contingent, right? They're, it's always a miracle if they survive, and it's always in question whether they will survive, and it's always a question about whether they should survive or whether they deserve to survive. Um, do you think this is bound up in that notion, too, that there are groups of people in Polish society who are just seen as their survival should always be kind of on the edge? <clears throat> When I was looking at surrogacy, which just for your listeners, just to review, um, if a, if in, in Poland you had to be a married couple, but if a if a couple, a heterosexual couple in Poland, because they didn't um, allow gay couples or other kinds of couple other kinds of people to participate, but let's just say the legal legally sanctioned, culturally sanctioned, it's called the couple form. The um, heterosexual couple is infertile. Um, they were able up until recently to pay another woman to carry a fertilized egg to term. And the way the Polish law allowed it is the woman who carried the uh, fetus, the embryo of the fetus, and then gave birth would then go through an adoption procedure in which the couple would adopt that infant, even though genetically it was their infant um, in law, it was only after birth that they could then adopt it. And so I went on some websites in which women were advertising their services as surrogates. And they would, there were all of these, some of these were very sophisticated websites and some of them were very just, you know, listserv type things. And the things these women said were really heartbreaking. They, they were happy to offer their services because that was the only way they could make money. The only way that they could afford to f pay, you know, for their shelter to support their other kids was to carry, was through their bodies, to carry somebody else's um, embryo and give birth. And it was just, you could see how they felt very, um, they were grasping at straws. They they were, you know, trying. They they were very precarious. They were in a very precarious situation. Yeah, it's it's obvious that you know over the last thirty years the social safety net has had vanished. And one of the things that peace has always offered is uh, to reinstate some of the social safety net that was taken away by previous government. So it's really interesting mix here where people are both feeling very jeopardized by peace and are being supported by peace in different ways through the 500 Zwati subsidy every month if they have enough children. Um, so it's, it's talking, you're, you're really talking about a whole new relationship between people and the state. Um, what do you think, what do you think the dynamics of the current crisis are going to be? Do you have any thoughts about the way things are trending or how things are going to end up? One, one thought I do have is that there is a tendency among political scientists to look only at 
the political parties at play and their main economic policies and PIS's uh, policies, for example, in, in trying to alter the judiciary. And they tend to view other uh, aspects of PIS, for example, it's anti-gay and lesbian policies, it's uh, anti-abortion policies as kind of just extra, you know, as rhetoric or as, oh, that's just them, you know, doing something to get people riled up, to satisfy their base, um, things like that. And and I guess I would say I think that the policies towards gays, lesbians, transgender, gen gender variant people and families, the policies towards women are more central than I think political observers would admit. Um, and I also think there have been some really creative anti-government activities going on in the past five years. There have been some incredibly creative re uh, movements for and groups uh, that mobilize for reproductive autonomy. Young women, they're using social media, they're using innovative design and visuals and sound and they're talking about, you know, I'm so glad we started with Tereska because they're talking about, yeah, be a girl. You know, you, you know, girlhood is about reproductive autonomy. Girlhood is about sexual autonomy. And so they're doing things that we never thought we would see in Poland, you know, and they're doing it themselves and they're doing it from the grassroots. And we see also this huge outpouring. Um, this morning I saw uh, a map on Twitter about covering, you know, that indicated where protests were across Poland and they're across all of Poland. You know, women out there with this amazing umbrella type, you know, the symbol of the umbrella that really indicates pretty clearly that where they stand on it. And so um, referencing the, the black umbrella protests of yeah. four or five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so I think this is a time I think this is a shift and I think this is a time of blossoming of really sort of anti-government uh, civil society, I would say. Yeah, although not not without um, a lot of confrontation. I was reading today about um, organizations on the right, men on the right, saying that they were going to physically go and defend Polish churches because they believed that the protesters were attacking churches. Although I don't think there's any evidence that the protesters have tried to single out churches. But they're going to create a kind of physical protection line in front of these churches to keep the protesters out of them. And it, it was really interesting reading that after reading your article, because it reminded me again of Tereska's father, you know, trying to guard the inside of the apartment as some space of order uh, against the chaos outside. And here you have men standing up to perform their masculinity in mm. a super politically hot charged environment in which everything they're doing is not just about their individual sense of being a man, but about the, the future of the country. So I, I really felt that statement of yours that being a masculine or feminine in Poland is politically charged at yeah. every moment, but particularly in these moments of crisis. That's a real, that, thank you for that. Yeah, that is really an interesting way to look at it. Um, and again, you know, notice who is being targeted as the culprit, right? These men are protecting the church from 
overly vocal women, overly political women, you know, from the women who are trying to steal, right? They're trying to steal, uh, I don't know, the purity of the church or the purity of the family, right? Yeah, and it's certainly, it, it, the confrontation is getting hotter and hotter, and we're, we're now looking at real militarized uh, or potentially militarized response from the state. Um, Kaczynski last night uh, promised that there would be uh, military police out in the streets if the protest continued. So we're going to keep tracking that and trying to understand the volatile mix of cultural factors. And I, I think you're right that it's, it's much more than economic factors. There's this volatile mix of cultural and economic factors coming together to create a real clash and um, watching how it plays out will be fascinating if distressing. Yeah. And the state, you know, there's a tendency to want to look at this one decision in isolation, but, you know, as you and I were, have been saying this whole interview that, you know, the state has gradually been upping and upping and upping its claim to be able to manage people's bodies, especially when it comes to sexual intimacy and who can reproduce and who can't. And so, so these women have been going through, a, you know, years of feeling threatened by this. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I'm really glad you are helping us sort through this message. And we may check back in with you as things progress and, and see what your interpretation of events is. Thank you so much for having me.